Welcome in to the Crawford Talks, episode number three, the second week of the podcast. I'm Mike Meltzer. He is Jake Kaplan. Make sure you rate and review us on Apple. Give us your thoughts on the podcast so far. Jake, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Um, just wanted to say before we really get into this that it was great to hear all the awesome feedback in, in week one. Thank you to everyone who listened and reached out. Um, it was a fun first week and looking forward to, to episode three here. I agree. And we always appreciate the uh, feedback and the interaction. That's one of the things I always enjoy about uh, just the sports media in general. So let's begin here. We've got some news from over the weekend about Justin Verlander. He left his start on Sunday. He was supposed to have four innings. He left after two because of tricep soreness. So we'll see exactly what's going to happen here from a timeline standpoint. But, you know, it's been a quiet spring, I think, up until this this moment on the injury front. When you look across baseball, especially in New York, the Yankees have had seemingly like guys left and right drop and basically be in a situation where they're not going to be ready for opening day. Now the Astros fall victim to this. And I mean, Jake, we're not sure exactly how long this is going to be with Verlander, but I think what it speaks to basically is, and I've said this during the offseason numerous times, Justin Verlander, the way the Astros are built, he is not allowed to be injured. He has not been injured since he has been here, I believe. He has been a horse for them. And this is something, the way the pitching staff is constructed with the question marks at four and five, the last thing they need is any questions with number one or number two. Yeah, I, I, obviously, I 100% agree with you. I think Greinke's in the same exact category as you as you just alluded to. Um, yeah. You know, they're really relying on a 37-year-old and a 36-year-old to, to pitch 200 innings, um, elite innings, really. Um, and in, traditionally, both those guys have been very healthy and in recent years, very durable and workhorses. But um, I don't know, the whole dynamic of, of the Astros, the team that was um, has been lauded as this progressive team, um, relying on a 37-year-old and a 36-year-old, um, regardless of who they are, it's just an interesting kind of twist on on how they've operated in recent years. Um, you know, they've been their model has been such so relying on you know relying on the young players who don't make any money and um, the mm -hmm. pre -arb arbitration players, the arbitration players. They don't typically re-sign the big money free agents. Um, it's just interesting how how you know they've they've gotten to this point now, um, and it, it might work. I mean. Verlander and Greinke when healthy are two of the best pitchers in baseball, but it's just an interesting dynamic at play that that they're at this point where they're I, they've got to be two of the oldest starters in baseball. Yes, and, and Jake, uh, there are certain problems in sports that you cannot outrun or outsmart, and pitcher injuries in baseball up until someone finds some miracle cure is one of them. You think about the rotation where it was two years ago with Verlander and Keuchel and Morton and McCullers, and when they made, and Cole obviously, when they made, what was it, every single start, like everyone made their turn up until yeah. August when McCullers got hurt. I mean, that kind of thing, that might happen to like one team across across the league this year. Otherwise, you need to have some sort of depth or at least some sort of options to kind of get you through. Yeah, I don't think that happens very frequently. Um, when that happened in 2018, that was pretty crazy. Um, I think it was August, like you said, when, when McCullers went, yep. got hurt at, Yankee, at uh, Dodger Stadium was the first time uh, some a starter had to miss a turn in the, in the ensuing weeks after that. 
Um, yeah, it's depth is important. The Astros, that was a big question coming into the spring, and it's even more a question now. Do they have the depth? I think, um, you know, that remains to be seen. You know, they're already relying on Jose Urquidy, a rookie, to, to fill in the fourth spot. Then um, you have, you know, Josh James, who was a reliever last year, Austin Pruitt, who was a reliever last year. So um, a lot of questions at the back end. And like you said, that, that really is why, why the number one and number two are so important because uh, they're really the only – Verlander and Grinke are really the only horses they have and the only certainties they were supposed to have, um, you know, coming into the spring with, with yes. the rotation. Jake, one more real quick point on this before we move on, because I think we'll have a much better sense uh, during the second podcast of the week, the, the second episode about what Verlander's status is going to be. I think you've said, correct me if I'm wrong, that you think Austin Pruitt has the inside track if there is one on the fifth starting rotation spot right now? I have fluctuated, but in my first uh, or my last couple projections on The Athletic, I've had Pruitt over Josh James. Um, okay. I think it's pretty neck and neck, though. And honestly, the last few days after James's last outing, I might have shifted to James. It's pretty 50-50, I think, if you ask me. So would you say at this point that the next man up, if they need an extra starter to or who knows, would be Josh James at this moment? Yeah, so say, say Verlander had to start the season late, I would just assume that it would be Josh James and Austin Pruitt making the rotation. Okay. We're not certain because Framber Valdez is still there and he has pitched well in spring. Um, but I would think that would be the likeliest scenario would be that James and Pruitt rounded out the rotation to, to, to start. Um, but again, we're not at that point yet. As we speak now, we don't really know Verlander's status, um, you know, and, and if that does happen, there is still the Frambert Valdez factor, um, who could he has started in the past and you could argue um could get the nod over Pruitt so to speak now one of the big decisions Dusty Baker is going to have to make before the season gets going in two and a half weeks is what he's going to do with his one corner outfield spot between Josh Reddick last year of his contract and Kyle Tucker still one of the Astros best prospects um Tucker, and this is something we discussed in detail in episode two, the trajectory has been a little bit iffy the last couple of years. You know, two years ago, he was dominant in the minors, came up, was awful. Last year, very mediocre in the minors, came up, was better in the big leagues. But we're still not sure exactly what he is going to be. So uh, let, me, let me do this. Here's what I expect. Jake, I would be really surprised if we began the season and Kyle Tucker was the everyday everyday outfielder in the lineup and Josh Reddick was relegated to the bench. I don't think that is going to happen. What I expect to happen is to Reddick is Reddick to start with the job and then have Tucker mixed in every couple of days. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, I think that's definitely reasonable. I I I, I think similar similarly, I think if you're Dusty Baker, you have to you can't put too much stock into spring training performance, um, and you have to let this play out early in the regular season. Um, you know, play the matchups early in the season. Um, you know, basically, I don't know if you can do 50-50, but split the playing time between Reddick and Tucker and see who wins the job. Um, you know, I don't think you can just hand the job to Tucker because he Baseball America likes him. You know, like you have to <laughs> make him earn the respect of, of the rest of the clubhouse with his performance. So 
um, especially in he's supplanting a you know a leader, uh, a veteran guy who's been around the clubhouse. So um, yeah, I think I think that's probably the likeliest scenario is that they split early in the year. But um, you know, it's going to probably be an ongoing debate throughout the year. Um, you know, the the minute one guy has a slump or struggles, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to go shift to the other guy. So. Uh, it's going to be an interesting storyline to watch as as the weeks unfold. Okay, let's kind of lay out the case for each guy and see what we think. So we're thinking about the case for Josh Reddick. Well, he's got a lot more experience, and he's better defensively. And while Reddick's a guy who can get into slumps, see middle, the middle parts of this past season, I think his lows are probably, I think his floor is probably a little bit higher than that of Kyle Tucker, who can really struggle at times. Does that sound about right, Jake? That's the case for Josh Reddick. Better defensively, more experience, and just a steadier overall player at this stage. Yeah, I think he's the, the case is the defense for sure. Um, he's he's a much better right fielder. Uh, Tucker is probably a better fit in left field. You know, if all things being equal, his arm's not great. Um, he, he can run, but. Um, you know, Reddick still has a really good arm. Uh, was a Gold Glove finalist in right field last year. If you if you care about such things, um, and then he makes more contact than Tucker. Um, but Tucker yes. has the the power potential. Reddick does not have for power, especially anymore. Tucker can, uh, but will he? We don't know. Uh, we haven't seen it for a sustained amount of time. I don't think he homered more than a couple times uh, in his brief major league career um and that was all last year when he came up in september so um you know he doesn't have any tucker has nothing left to prove in triple a but um like i said earlier like when you're when you're talking about a guy who is a veteran respected in the clubhouse you know i think you have to these are delicate situations in terms of like the clubhouse culture and you have if you're dusty baker you have to really let kyle tuck make kyle tucker win the job rather than give it to him And I think the case for Kyle Tucker is much more about Kyle Tucker than it is the team. And here's what I mean by that. It's going to be tough to perform well and to get yourself into a groove if you're playing every other day or every third day, especially with the way Kyle Tucker goes. And so if, I'll put it this way, if he was like my client or something like that, I would say, listen, this is one of the. This has been a guy who's been named one of the top prospects in baseball at various points in the last couple of years. If you want to see what you're going to really get from Kyle Tucker, you got to put him in left field, and you got to put him there every single day. Because if this guy is going to be playing, you know, two three games a week, he's not going to be able to find a way to the consistency that you want, and you're not going to really be able to see what you have in this guy unless you actually give him the job. That, for me, Jake, that's the case for Kyle Tucker. Yeah, I think th- I think that's fair. I think, um, you know, if, if they were obviously in a different position, they could do that easily. If they're rebuilding or um, even kind of teetering on the the fringe between competitive or not, but obviously that's not where they are. This, you know, as we've spoken about in, in recent episodes, this is their last best chance to make it back to the World Series. So, um, you know, they really, I, I think if you're Dusty Baker, you have to play the whoever's performing best. And, and that's probably going to fluctuate. Like, like I said, there's going to be a slump for both guys. There's going to be 
hot streaks for both guys. Um, you know, it will be tough for both of them to stay, you know, fresh if they're playing every other day or every third day, but it's kind of just a product of the situation and where the team is. Um, you know, but it's it's tough to say you're just going to give the job to the 23-year-old who hasn't really done much yet, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, it's it. I, I think we all expect Redick to, to start, especially on opening day, and then you kind of take it from there and you, and you see what the performance is like. I mean, if this was like last year, then Redick gets off to a hot start, and it's not really a conversation a month or two into the season. But then as you get into you know the meat of the season and he struggles, then that would be a talking point. What, what do we think... Jake about Dusty Baker and younger players like Kyle Tucker. You know he has the reputation of being like a um, favoring the veteran. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, you know, there's a lot of like reputations with these managers who've been around a long time. Some of them bear out to be, you know, meaningful, and some of them don't. Um, you know, I think we have to wait and see. But um, yeah, I, I think. He's in a place, because he's new and new to the team, I think he can really just base it off what he sees in performance this year and not, you know, put too much stock into um, what a guy did last year, two years ago, or three years ago. Um, you know, Redick was not good last year. He he was he had an 89 OPS plus, so he's 11% less productive than the league average um, mm-hmm. at the plate. But at the same time... You know, he's a good defender. And how much offense are they going to need from the ninth spot in the order or the eighth spot in the order, depending on whether Maldonado hits eighth or the or the right fielder hits, hits eighth. So, um, you know, obviously you want more offense, but it's not as imperative when the rest of your lineup is as stacked as the Astros is. Okay, last point on this. If it's the end of the season, is it – more likely that they're going back and forth or that Kyle Tucker has taken the job himself. I still feel at this stage like it's more likely that they're going back and forth. I agree with you. Uh, for a lot of the reasons, as I, I talked about earlier, with the, the veteran versus the rookie clubhouse dynamic, um, I think that's a big part of it. That, that makes sense. And we will, folks, during the season disagree at some point but i mean it's early it's it's spring training it's spring like, training no, nothing, for us too spring training for us no, nothing horrific has happened uh up until this point once there are controversial things in games i'm sure jake and i will will disagree on various things that are uh that are going to occur during this which should be a very interesting 2020 season and speaking of that um something a lot of people are not really talking about but the astros have had sort of a unique lineup in what they've done especially the last two three years with springer uh, uh springer leading off dusty baker the batting order um, the batting order is always something that I think is interesting when, when people talk about with a baseball team because I never can really figure out if it actually means a lot. It, it seems to mean a lot in terms of the message that it sends to certain guys. At this stage, like halfway through spring training, Jake, do you think that Dusty is going to keep the kind of lineup that A.J. Hinch had rolling out there the last couple of years? It seems that way from... Uh... I mean, I don't know if they've had. I don't think they've had the full lineup in any single day yet. But they've had days where it's been close, and um, it's pretty close to what AJ Hinch did. Um, 
with with maybe some minor tweaks here and there, and, and you can't really draw too many conclusions from spring training, but um, Dusty Baker is on record as saying he's going to leave George Springer in the leadoff spot. So, um, you know, that, that was a big A.J. Hinch staple that he is keeping and maintaining. Um, you know, it, it's funny. Batting order is probably the thing that generates the most interest and discussion among uh, fan, baseball fans that means the means very little like it, it does not matter that much over the course of a season but uh it is fun to debate and fun to talk about and um you know i i generally subscribe to the idea that you probably should just give your best players the most at bats uh for the, for the most part the astros have done that under aj hinch or did did do that under aj hinch but um you know i, I do know there was some that thought that springer should be you know batting third or fourth and um, I think you could definitely make a case that Alex Bregman, being their best on base guy, should bat first or second. Um, and you could also make a case that Jordan Alvarez, being their best hitter after his debut last year, should bat higher than fifth. But um, that would entail dropping Michael Brantley down. And, you know, as Dusty Baker said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it with George Springer at the leadoff spot. That has really. Yes worked for them since I believe it was the middle of 2016 when when they made that switch the the Springer thing is interesting because I feel like if we were if we were starting from scratch here and Dusty was just kind of building a lineup totally from scratch and there was no past history then Springer would not be leading off but because he is the heart and soul of the team and the fact that Springer hitting leadoff the last couple of years has been sort of a a jumping off point a, a starter for them uh, I'm trying to figure out the right word to use here um, like a jump start that, that's sort of what I'm looking for here that. He's not going to change that part of it, but I think if he was completely starting from scratch, that's something he might think about. So let, let's go. Let's do, let's do this, Jake. Like let's let's go through like the one through seven, like the the meat of this lineup, and see what we think. So Springer one, that's going to remain. Uh, two, you would prefer to have Bregman over Altuve. It sounds like based on the on base percentage, is that fair? Yeah, I think I think so, but like. At that point, are you going to drop Jose Altuve further, or are you going to bat him third? Like, I think if you're starting from scratch, you would go, like, Bregman first. Um, yeah. Altuve second. Alvarez third. Like, I, I just, you know, I think you look at on-base percentage first when you're when you're talking about these things. And, um, but like like you Am said, we're, we're not starting from scratch. I'm, so it's a, it's a... We are not. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there. Am I crazy? Am I crazy for thinking that if I was Dusty Baker, I would think about batting Correa cleanup? Am I crazy for that? No, I don't think so. I think he's gonna. Damn it! I thought big, you were gonna say I'm crazy. I think he's gonna have a really big year, but that's for our bold predictions podcast down the road. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I don't think that's crazy. I, I think like they have so much like potential. Um, like you could go through one through seven, and tell one me through that seven. Yeah, I agree. Any of those guys are going to be an all star this year, and I wouldn't think it was crazy. So, um, you know, I, I think you could come up with so many different variations of the of this order that would make sense. Um, you know, and I I don't think any of them would be wrong either. Like, there's like batting Alvarez higher than fifth would entail dropping Michael Brantley, 
who was an all-star last year. Um, but I don't know if that's wrong. Dropping, you know, adding, uh, batting Bregman higher and Alvarez higher in the same order would mean Altuve's lower. You know, that sounds wrong, but is it? I don't know. So, like, there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's a, there's really no wrong answer for Dusty Baker either. But um, it is interesting to debate, and I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of merit to to the discussion that maybe um, certain guys should be higher and, and, and others lower. I, I just think that when it came around to the postseason, back to the Correa thing real quick, they were in a spot where his season had been so up and down from an injury standpoint, and he had missed different stretches that when he got to the postseason, it was like, man, you have a lot of guys who were hitting pretty well who had big seasons. I mean, you can't really put Correa where he normally would be in the middle of the lineup. And so if you look at the postseason, Correa was hitting seventh a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're in a spot where you're starting a season, which I think is different from a, ment- from a mental standpoint. And it would be a surprise to me if it was opening day and Correa was hitting seventh. I, I just think he's going to be... I don't know if he's going to be hitting fifth, but I, I think he's going to be up in the order for, from where he was in the postseason because you're starting new. And in Correa's situation, I, just, I, I would be very surprised if he was hitting seventh on opening day. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he's he's probably ahead of Yuli Gurriel now. Um, you know, the same thing happened in 2018. Of course, that year he was terrible post-injury and didn't really warrant being higher than seventh in the playoffs. But... He came into spring last year, um, or the regular season last year, and it, it was unclear if he would bet fourth or fifth. Him and Michael Brantley were kind of um, both in line for fourth, and then A.J. Hinch ultimately went with Brantley went with Cur- and, and dropped Correa to fifth, which worked. And then Alvarez, that, that's pre-Jordan Alvarez's rise. So um, yes. I guess a lot depends on Alvarez, right? Like, if, is he going to be this guy who OPS is 1,000 like he did last year? Uh, mm-hmm. Or is he due for some regression? Um, if he regresses, I think he drops below Correa. But if he doesn't, then you got to find him more at bats than than batting fourth or fifth. You got to bat him third, I think. If he so basically, if he puts up during the season what he did after he came up, you're like he's got to be third or fourth. Period. Yeah, yeah. I think okay. fifth is too low because over the course of the year, you're losing at bats. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's if they're if they're lucky and these guys stay healthy and perform the way that we think they can, it would be one of those nice problems to have. Because as you're as you're talking, I can't disagree because Alvarez was a monster last year during the regular season. And when you're saying, well, he's got to be batting third or fourth, I'm like, that sounds logical. You're right. And yet I'm looking at it, it's like Springer, Altuve, Brantley, Bregman. Like it's hard to remove somebody specifically, even if Al- even if Alvarez is performing like that. But I think you're right. They would have to do that if he is able to convert that performance into a full season. Yeah, and the whole part that we we never really know about is like the behind the scenes stuff. What are players telling the manager? What do they prefer? You know, yes. guys definitely have preferences. And it's the manager's job to kind of manage all the different preferences without, you know, catering too much to one or the other. Um, does one guy like hitting here versus here? You know, there's all, all that stuff at play that we'll never really, we don't hear the whole story. But um, if, it's fun to, to speculate about and, and talk about, especially if you're going with the premise of you can start from scratch and, and no preconceived notions. But of course, 
Um, Dusty Baker's operating with a lot of preconceived knowledge from from stuff that he's you know inheriting, um, and that's going to come when you inherit a veteran team like this. Now, something very interesting has happened over this weekend, and we mentioned in episode two that Colin McHugh signed with the Red Sox. We'll see you know, how he contributes, if what role he's going to be in w- with the Red Sox, especially, you know, Jake mentioned episode two, more of a reliever maybe at this stage than a starting pitcher. Kyle McHugh, for the first time, really spoke about the sign-stealing scandal, and I think he provided one of the most interesting perspectives. We're, we're going to play some of the audio in, in a second here, because McHugh, you know, he, he's a guy who is not shy, I think, in, in, from a microphone standpoint. I think he's got a podcast, for God's sake, although I, I still I admit I, I've yet to listen to it. I, I will I, I will attend some points i hear it's very good i have people tweeting me that it's good but anyway here's colin McHugh signs with the red sox and he talked about having perspective a few years after 2017 looking back on the 2017 season i just i feel like i've, I've got a lot more perspective now and looking back and seeing how hard pitching is in general in the big leagues right now i think this is the most talented group of players that's ever been assembled in major league baseball and i think that's that's without a doubt and so pitching every day in the big leagues, no matter who you're pitching against or what team you're pitching against, is really hard. Uh, it's a grind. And to know, to put myself in the shoes of the guys who pitched against us in 2017 and to know that our hitters made that, that job that much harder that year, it's hard to swallow. And I feel for them, and I, and I understand the anger. I understand when, when people are, uh, are mad and, and pissed off, and I get it. I've been there. I know what it feels like to be out there and feel like a team has your signs, and it's a lonely place. Uh, so I think from that perspective, knowing that that happened to some of my fellow pitchers uh, that year, I understand, and I, I, I empathize with them and with the fans. I think that was in some that was an illustrative comment by McHugh. And one thing, as as I'm listening to that, Jake, that that I think about, and you can tell me if I'm way off on this, but I thought one poignant moment of the MLB Network interview with AJ Hinch. And I give their producers and Tom Verducci a lot of credit for this. When they played the video with A.J. Hinch sitting there of Danny Farquhar when he was pitching against the Astros late in 2017. And when you heard the trash can, it was like so obvious. I think almost everybody is watching that, no matter what your feelings, emotions, thoughts, perspectives are. Like that was uncomfortable to watch. Uh, because it was clearly wrong. And I thought about that video when I was listening to the McHugh comments from this weekend. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've been waiting to hear his perspective because he always has, McHugh has been one of the more well-spoken players in baseball for a long time, um, has opinions about a lot of things, is really knowledgeable about a lot of things. Um, yeah, it's you know, it really makes you think, like, how how did they get to a point in 2017 where they weren't thinking the way they think now um, with more perspective on it? Like, how, how did they convince themselves that that was okay? Um, you know, it's crazy to think about, and I don't really know if we'll ever really understand that dynamic. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting to hear McHugh say that and... Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of the pitchers feel that way because they, you know, they're in the same, you know, they share a job with a lot of those pitchers that the Astros stole signs illegally against and um, can relate in some way. Well, you mentioned, Jake, the dynamic, and Colin McHugh talked a little bit about that, that we have a certain 
thought or feeling about ourselves, but maybe in the biggest of moments, we were not able to do the things that we think we would do. Here is Colin McHugh on where he and, and the pitchers you know, may have fallen short in 2017. I think probably the most disappointing thing is how is that probably what we've said to fans throughout this process, uh, and I think it's setting the setting the wrong example, because I've learned and and I know that in order to be a good baseball player, I don't mean a talented baseball player because there's a lot of talented play, baseball players, but a good baseball player and, and somebody that I would want to look up to as a kid, um, or to be a good husband or a good father or just a good adult in this world, you've got to be brave, and you got to be willing to stick up for what you believe in and what you believe is right and what you believe is wrong. And uh, I think a lot of the guys um, on that team are, including myself, are looking back now and, and wishing we had been as brave in the moment as we thought we were beforehand. I think that was a very relatable comment. And there's nothing in my life that I, that immediately pops to mind that is that is the equivalent or along the lines of what happened with them in 2017 but i can easily imagine jake a, a situation especially in a group dynamic where it's very competitive where if the thought process is and one part that i didn't play was you know i think McHugh said something along the lines of like you know, we thought that other teams were doing very similar things or were doing certain things. And so basically the idea of that, like, you know, we got to do something because this stuff is going on across baseball. And that's how you kind of mentally reconcile things. But I, I just found that part to be relatable that, you know, we go we go about our daily lives in whatever it is that we do. And we we, we hold ourselves up to a certain ideal or a standard. We think we are a certain way. And yet that's really put to a test in that kind of situation and like do you have the guts are you brave enough to say no this is the wrong thing to do and let me actually put a stop to it yeah no i agree with everything you said uh, again we keep agreeing here what's going on um we keep agreeing damn it <laughs> <laughs> but no i think maybe the most thoughtful comments we've heard from a 2017 astros pitcher um were, were the ones that we just heard from colin McHugh. um and that's not surprising, knowing knowing Colin McHugh. But um, you know, I think this dynamic of the cone of silence, and you know, you have a whole pitching staff, and none of these guys, you know, they all just kind of sat there while this went on. Um, ditto for for coaches, coaching staff. I, I think it, you know, I don't think we'll ever really understand that. It's probably an unexplainable dynamic that led the pitchers to just not do anything about it, but. Um, you know, I think McHugh, if we're going to understand it some, he, he explains it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it is so, it, I keep coming back to this, like how how did the sport or how did the Astros get to a point where they they convinced themselves that this was okay? It's just, I don't really understand it and I don't think I ever will. Let's say, let's, let's run back history the last three weeks. Let's imagine they had no press conference on that Thursday when spring training opened up, Jake, and they just opened up the, the clubhouse and everybody sounded kind of like Colin McHugh did. Maybe not you know, quite so eloquent, but in the general stratosphere or universe, what do you think the reaction would have been across baseball had that happened? Uh, I think it would have been a little less... Um less vitriolic is, is vitriolic a word or am i making up words um i like it a little less anger i mean i think you're gonna have anger either way because they let it sit there for a month i think this was the first week of spring training was the f for most of these players their first public comments since november when the athletic story first came out 
definitely since January when the investigation ended and the MLB findings came out. Um, so I think by virtue of the Astros letting it sit there for a month without really doing anything um, or saying anything, you would have still had a lot of anger. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, more comments like McHugh's would have helped, you know, sooner. But at the same time, I, I, I wrote this at the day of that press conference. It, like, the whole thing of, like, we need to get in the same room before we comment doesn't make any sense to me. Like, if you're Jim Crane... You know, like five or six of your players from the 2017 team live in Houston. The other ones, you have an airplane. You can go get them. They're not going to say <laughs> they're not going to come to town to meet. You yeah. could have met January 18th or whatever and done a press conference in Houston on January 20th and been dumb, not done with it, but like, I don't know. I think by not doing that, you brought the distraction to spring training even more so. Um, I think, you know, just letting the story sit there and not addressing it for an entire month was maybe their, their I don't know if their biggest mistake in the fallout of it, but definitely a huge blunder in the fallout of it. I don't know. I can't I can't believe I, I am stumbling upon this, but this is a this is a really good point by you. Um because I, I hadn't considered because I, I I kept thinking about their PR strategy as far as what they should have done at the start of spring training. But the way you're the way you're explaining it, it really makes sense. Like what they should have done is at some point before spring training had some sort of big, maybe like Andy Pettit back in the day style press conference, because then all the fallout is contained to, let's say, mid to late January. And then things, then then we don't have like the feeding frenzy of three weekends ago of Astros reaction, Cody Bellinger, Aaron Judge, Carlos Correa, a couple of Manfred news conferences. From a timing standpoint, it would have worked out a lot better for them if they had done it closer in time, disconnected from spring training. Yeah, and I think it's also more fair to the 50, player, 50 players in the clubhouse who had nothing to do with it. You know, By True. doing it the way they did it, they brought the distraction to these, these other 50 players. Um, you know, The guys who weren't on the 2017 team and many guys who weren't on the 2018 team. So... Yeah, I don't like it. It makes you think that they really did not understand how big a deal this was um, from a PR perspective. And like I said, the whole like we need to meet in person in Florida doesn't really make sense to me when you could have met in Houston a month earlier. Jake, you've got a story about Lance McCullers and his pitch mix. I do. I do. Can you preview that a little bit for our audience? Yeah. So. Um, we talked about McCullers in the first two episodes, so don't want to get too deep into more McCullers talk, but basically this spring he's working on throwing a four-seam fastball again, which is something he hasn't really done full-time since 2016, and um, I spoke to him earlier in spring training about the reasons why he went away from his four-seam fastball in the first place. He's, he's relied on this two-seam fastball since 2016, and why he wants to get why it was a goal of his during his rehab to re-implement it to his repertoire. So he's working on being really a four-pitch guy. Um, and it's it just, it's another like evolution of his pitch mix, which has since his debut in 2015 gone through uh, a lot of twists and turns and, and changes. 
This has been episode number three of the Crawford Talks. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe to The Athletic to check out all of Jake's work and all the other great work uh, across The Athletic platforms. He's Jake Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer. Do us a favor, rate and review us on Apple. It is the Crawford Talks episode number three.